Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you too, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. How has it all been? It's all been quite busy. And can I just say very quickly, while I remember, I now can't remember, it's all a bit of a blur, but in one of the podcasts last year, we had Dinah Birch talking about Charles Dickens, didn't we? We did our very last one of last year. Oh, it was, yes. yes and it was. she said we had to, to reread A Christmas Carol, and I did. I'm just showing off because I remember that I did actually do it. It's jolly good, let me tell you. <laughs> the big news, <laughs> Surprise <headline> verdict. <laughs> and actually, it is so well known that there's lots and lots of it that you think, oh, yes, I know this, I know this phrase, because so much of it has kind of gone into our discourse about Christmas. Interesting. Anyway, sorry for talking about Christmas, because that's all gone. It's all behind us. It's January. It's all new. So what was your best Christmas present then? Well, I'm going to drive you mad now, Lucy, because it was a gardening present. Oh, I'm already jealous, and I don't know what it was. What was it? It was in, it's in Racing Green. Mm-hmm. It's got four wheels. It's a, a very handy, no. I've no, no, a wheelbarrow. no, wheelbarrow hasn't got four wheels anyway. Sorry. Do it's go a on. little garden cart. Oh, how lovely. What, to put your pots and pull them around? Exactly that. <laughs> That's very good. And it kind of turns on a sixpence. Super, like a London taxi cab. Exactly that. And I have to say, when it was given to me by my husband, he said, I just felt too bad watching you struggle with the wheelbarrow. And I did think, well, there's various responses that one might have to watching someone with struggle with a wheelbarrow but I have to say getting them a green garden cart is perfectly good I'm very happy with that that seems like a very good response you know the way a wheelbarrow can sometimes go rogue on you I do I do and tip up wildly we have different experiences because your vast tracts of land mean you have to travel uh, very long distances with things whereas I can just turn around and be at the other corner of my garden but I'm not being jealous at all Alex that's absolutely fine and I'm delighted that you've got a cart I'm that's going to say good. yet again 
yet again for the benefit of of the uh of, it's a boggy field it's not salt burn don't live in salt who knows burn. what was your best present lucy <laughs> oh i got lots of lovely presents but one of them is a very nice pot which i if i had a cart i would put it i would put the pot in the cart now you're sounding a little bit like Eeyore putting his burst <laughs> balloon into his heart, just to bring it back to books. But Christmas yes. is over. We are fully into the new year. But we're not staying in the known world this week, are we, Lucy? Because we're going to go beyond it as Charles Foster examines the effects of psychedelics and Alan Jenkins takes to the high seas. But first... We're going to get the year off to a mind-expanding start by shuttling between different planes of consciousness. This is what Charles Foster is exploring for us this week in his review of four recent books on psychedelic drugs, what they do to us, how they could help us, and how society thinks about them. Charles is a multi-award-winning author who's written about animal consciousnesses, humans included, as well as being a visiting professor in medical ethics at Oxford and a practicing barrister, and a veterinary surgeon to boot. Charles, many thanks for joining us on our whistle-stop tour of consciousness. Great to be with you. You start your your piece with an experience that you had uh, under the influence of nitrous oxide, for medical reasons, I should say. What happened to you and your state of mind then? Well, I was leaping, I thought, swashbucklingly onto a stage to give a talk, um, and it all went wrong, and I fell down and I dislocated my shoulder, so they took me off to the hospital, and they gave me gas and air, so nitrous oxide. Uh, which is uh, very commonly used in obstetric analgesia, but also used for procedures like the one they tried to do on me, which was to get my sh dislocated shoulder back. And as I inhaled this gas, I, it seemed to be I, rose out of my body. And I looked down at my body. I was vaguely interested in the pain that this body was experiencing, but there was no doubt what the real I was. It was the hovering thing. The body was almost irrelevant to me. Um, and I could see the parting of the nurse as he tried to wrench my shoulder back. Uh, and then eventually I lost consciousness and my body and myself, as it seemed to me to be, became one again. And that's an experience which is very common to lots of women uh, who have this um, gas for uh, the birth of their babies. They will hover over themselves and they will watch their own babies being delivered in a way that seems geometrically impossible. And these experiences of leaving our bodies and getting a different perspective on ourselves are extremely common and are said by many to be very formative. So when we first became behaviourally modern humans um, in the Upper Paleolithic, so 45,000 years or so ago, uh, some people think that that ignition of modern consciousness was caused by shamanic journeyings out of our bodies, across the cave wall, into other worlds, um, into the skins of non-human animals. And the perspective, it's thought, that looking back at ourselves from those distant realms gave us was something which enabled us to describe ourselves in a way which had previously been impossible. Uh, and that gave us what we are. So that gave us self-consciousness in a way, to look back and go, ah, that's me, that's who I am. It gave us self-consciousness and therefore the, the possibility of relating to other people because we've got to know what we ourselves are before we can 
have proper relationships. So it gave us a whole relational context. It gave us a whole perspective from which to survey the whole world. And Charles, when when you were hovering above yourself and you were, was you, the body, as you say, didn't seem very important to you, were you frightened or were you simply curious or a kind of neutral sort of emotion or maybe no emotion? One would expect it to be a really frightening experience and it wasn't. Um, and that was the most surprising thing about it. Um, you know, I wondered if I was dying, uh, but I was just mildly interested in what the dying experience was going to be like. Um, so the eye which was hovering uh, above my body um, was happy to be there. It was secure in the place that it was. It didn't seem to need the connection with the body um, that we have in our everyday lives. Wow. That was reassuring. Perhaps I'll die more comfortably as a result of having um, that experience in the hospital. Of not being afraid of it. Yeah. You refer in your piece to Michael Pollan's book, Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, which came out in 2018. That's being a direct inspiration for three of the books that you've reviewed for us. We talked to him at the time, actually, and he was very firmly on the side of exploring the therapeutic therapeutic use of psychedelics, though he did have a couple of horrendous experiences himself, didn't he? And you say these three books, which is by Andy Mitchell and David Nutt and Rachel Neuer, they, they're all firmly books of advocacy, are they? Yes, and they make the case, to my eye, completely compellingly, for certainly for further research into therapeutic uses for psychedelics and for the current use in medicine of psychedelics for lots of possible applications. Um, so we know, for example, that psilocybin, so the active ingredient in, mushroom, in magic mushrooms, is extremely effective for treatment-resistant depression. Similarly for ketamine. Um, ecstasy is very good at treating post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which is a deadly condition. It causes lots of suicides. Um, and it is a bit of an outrage that the legal prohibitions on the use in medical hands of these substances has inhibited research and has probably cost lots of lives. Mm. Well, I was going to talk about that later, but David Knott is particularly sort of involved in that process, isn't it? Because he tried to draw attention to, well, he tried to draw attention to the fact that these drugs were less dangerous than a lot of others that are around and also could be therapeutic and has been not only not listened to, but sort of kicked out of his job for doing so. Yeah, so uh, he was the UK drug czar um, and he lost his job um, because he dared to put before the public um, the relative risks of riding as an activity and ecstasy taking. Um, riding is apparently considerably more dangerous than ecstasy taking. These risk assessments um, need to be put in their proper context. Um, it's well documented that uh, the risks are much lower, unsurprisingly, uh, when um, these psychedelics are used in a clinical context. It, it's also um, important to note that the risk of horrible, disturbing, bad trips is lower when the drug which is being used is legal. Um, so the, the risk of prosecution adds to the risk of the nasty effects, which the law rightly is keen to diminish. Mm, mm. I was really fascinated by that account of 
what it could do for people with really serious long-term psychiatric disorders. And it put me in mind strongly of listening to an account of someone who suffered from PTSD and thinking how often we sort of colloquially think of the word flashback to mean as vivid or sudden memory and how in his account, he's, you know, it is actually the flashback is literally like being back in the traumatic situation. It is absolute reality, which suggests that our brains not on psychedelics have the capacity to do extraordinary things, to take us to these states of altered consciousness and that psychedelics can somehow work with that in order to to kind of ameliorate conditions like that. It's very just just fascinating about what the brain can do, what it's capable of. Yeah, and we seem to be wired up for for much more reality than we normally access. Mm. People have done studies on the amount of connection between neurons in the brain um, suggests that uh, we can process between nine and 11 different dimensions. Now, it's not completely clear really what that means, but we, we normally choose to um, live in four dimensions. So our three spatial dimensions and time, but there's so much more to the accessible uh, universe than that. And so perhaps our beloved dead are to be found on level of consciousness um, eight or nine, who knows? Very famous uh, piece of uh, psychedelic discussion is, of course, Aldous Huxley's. He, he talked about uh, the brain as a valve which controls the amount of data that flows into our brain. Um, it controls it um, so that um, we're not overwhelmed in a way which might be distressing. But it also controls it in a way which means that we're construing the sort of place the universe is on the basis of only a tiny amount of the available data. Um, so Aldous Huxley postulated that uh, mescaline slackened that valve, allowing much more reality to flow in. If we can cope with that amount of reality, it would seem at least interesting to find out what that extra slice of data would tell us about the, the place that we live in. Mm. But you, you're talking as well about PTSD and the, the breaking um, by psychedelics of harmful practices and the ablation of nasty experiences like flashbacks. Um, it, it's worth reflecting, I think, on the, the way that psychedelics are, are thought to work. So some of them at least work by increasing neuroplasticity. So by, by making the brain literally grow, Every neuron in our brain has uh, hundreds of branches, and on each of those branches, there's thousands of spines. Uh, if you take psychedelics, you see um, a very fast sprouting of both the branches and the spines. So they are literally mind expanding, and they make our brains uh, better connected. It may be that one of the ways in which um, psychedelics can help, for example, in depression, is by turning off, by better um, brain connection, um, harmful circuits, uh, perhaps the circuits which in depression tell the sufferer that they're worthless, that they are never going to recover, which is, of course, the great lie which depression continually tells us, that they can literally, in some circumstances, reshape our brains to be, to be more functional. 
I found that in your piece, that's exactly the question I was going to ask. I found that astonishing. Those are amazing. The implications of that, that you can sort of grow a new pathway, are extraordinary, aren't they? Our brains are much more plastic than we for a long time have thought them to be. The old picture was when you are born, you have all the neurons that you're ever going to have. And in fact, after you're born, the number of neurons diminishes. And that broad picture is still right, but it's becoming increasingly clear that we can remodel our brains, for example, after traumatic head injury or stroke. Um, and this research on psychedelics um, suggests that that remodeling process can be helped in some ways by these sorts of drugs. So it's not just in, uh, quote, uh, psychiatric conditions that this is potentially helpful. Um, one of the stories that I um, mentioned in this review is uh, an intriguing story of a, a young man, 34 years old, uh, with Parkinson's disease, so frozen as Parkinson's disease does. He was given a psychedelic and it unfroze him. He was able to go back to the gym and, and do backflips. Now, who knows what the the real story of that is. Perhaps it was nothing to do with the psychedelic at all, but at least it's it's worth investigating. And, and it's a shame that the legal inhibitions inhibited research, which could have helped so many. Mm. Well, that's another big question, isn't it? That why, why has this research been blocked for so long? You, you talk about how philosophers and scientists have experimented and thought about it, and, and how, is it partly that the legislators have found what they've said frankly, difficult and alarming. Yeah. So, I mean, the conventional explanation is um, the establishment doesn't like people to have access to other ways of looking at the world. And um, psychedelics would open uh, the doors to um, other ways of looking at the world. I wonder if there's something else going on. We have long-standing, very deep-seated intuitions that there are some parts of the accessible universe, which we shouldn't go to, although we can. We see that in prohibitions about contacting the dead. We see it in biblical stories about um, the high priest alone being able to go into the Holy of Holies. Um, we see it in all, all sorts of, of taboos. I don't dismiss the significance of those intuitions. Sometimes intuitions can tell us really important fundamental things about the world which aren't captured by, by our reasoning. But it's much easier to legislate for prohibition um, of, of these sorts of experiences than it is to legislate for their controlled. So I, I suspect the legislators have often uh, taken the, the easy way out. Um, perhaps they have wanted to maintain the atomistic view of, of the person, which is a view which is broken down by psychedelics. Um, psychedelics, uh, for example, ecstasy, um, increase empathy. They seem to make us more porous to uh, the creatures outside ourselves, both human and non-human. And there's a threat in that uh, increased porosity to um, a society which presumes that humans are like billiard balls, uh, little hard-walled um, atoms. Um, you know, our whole economic structure, whereas our whole political structure is, is built, at least in the West, on that presumption. And uh, perhaps 
governments are rightly or wrongly concerned about about breaking down that that view of of ourselves and therefore of our relationship to the world but mm. whatever the reason for it research about the medical use of these compounds um, should not uh, be uh, inhibited and uh, I think three of the books which I have reviewed here make the case uh, very impressively for that. And Charles, your, this is your area, medical ethics, your speciality. If the weight of evidence, medical research begins to build up and there begin to be really compelling reasons for exploring and perhaps applying these kinds of solutions to a whole range of, of issues, what do you think the ethical concerns will be? What will be the framework that people can begin to go forward and actually look to what benefit they might bring us? Well, there has to be a, a detailed audit of uh, risk and benefit. And that audit has been done in three of these books very diligently. But I, I think that the market now um, has realised uh, that the risk and, uh, and benefit analysis falls squarely in the case of lots of these compounds um, in favour of the medical use of psychedelics. So back in 2018, um, the, the US Food and Drug Administration deregulated psilocybin and said it was a, a breakthrough therapy in the treatment of depression. It's thought that by 2028, the magic mushroom market in the US will be worth uh, 6.4 billion dollars so uh, about the same as, as baby food since july of 2023 in australia it's been lawful to use psilocybin for treatment uh, resistant depression and mdma and um, that's ecstasy for, for ptsd i mentioned already that ketamine um, has proved its worth as an agent for the treatment of uh, treatment resistant depression and the UK now has a number of clinics where that's recognized. So the worth of these compounds has now been demonstrated, the risk benefit analysis in, in relation to their use in lots of, of compounds now needs, even in the eyes of the legislators, um, little further vindication. And I expect there is going to be much more deregulation um, in the, the future uh, years and months. In your pieces, well, you say early on, in fact, well, you mentioned earlier, we've been altering our states of consciousness for, for thousands of years in various ways using, you know, plants and fungi and all sorts of things. But you say in that point, it's usually as part of a framework, it's a religious framework often, or it was a societal framework. I think Michael Pollan calls it set and setting and says that that's crucial. And, and your point was that this framework, this kind of wind, which grew up organically, has only recently been dropped this is not for therapeutic use i suppose this is just generally and that that's a dangerous thing that that if there's no set or setting or no framework around it the risk gets a lot greater yeah so lots of these compounds have been used traditionally um, in the context of liturgies of various sorts if you take away that liturgical context and just use these compounds in your home i think that it introduces all sorts of, uh, of additional dangers. The therapeutic context could provide a, a quasi-liturgical context, uh, a, a structure with 
um, within which these compounds um, can be used safely. But it does trouble me that people are talking incontinently about the use of these compounds outside the, the medical context, because as, as I detail in this review, um, there are a number of both physical and psychiatric reasons to worry about uh, the unregulated use of psychedelics. Mm. Well, you have this this wonderful point that you make right near the end. You say, do we need psychedelics for, for therapeutic reasons? And there's one answer for that, or even in our daily lives. And then you make this killer point right at the end of the piece. Can you talk us through that? Well, we know that psychedelics work um, using metabolic pathways in our brain. Those metabolic pathways in our brain are not designed to be tweaked by these psychedelics. They're designed for naturally occurring compounds. There are other ways of getting quasi-psychedelic experiences um, without using the substances themselves. I say in the piece, we are designed for experiences of consciousness other than our quotidian experiences of consciousness. And we're designed to access those other planes of consciousness using drugs like air and media like music and chanting and meditation. My concern about the, the non-medical use of psychedelics is that you're using a, a, a metabolic sledgehammer to crack a nut and cracking nuts with sledgehammers isn't usually good for the nut. So we should, I think, rather than uh, rushing to deregulate um, psychedelics for uh, non-medical use, be learning how to live more intensely um, using the naturally psychedelic brains that we've got, um, mm. using the other ways of accessing uh, planes of consciousness which have um, historically been used. Uh, so I write at the end of the review that you know Bach, the music of Bach is is a psychedelic sacrament. You know, the St Matthew Passion um, can, if you use it properly, uh, take you to other planes of consciousness without any of the uh, dangers associated with these psychedelic drugs. So I, I'm hugely excited by the potential of of human brains. It uh, frustrates me that we use so little of the access to other planes of consciousness that we might have. It uh, frustrates me that we're, we're choosing to live in a tiny fraction of the, of, of the amount of reality which we could um, live in. I'm grateful to the psychedelic literature for, for showing us these other areas of reality, for giving us Cook's tour of these other places. Um, I think outside the medical context, there are, are better and more ultimately satisfactory and lasting uh, ways of getting to these places. Mm. So it's, it's Bach and air instead of gas. Bach and, and air. air first. Instead of, exactly. <laughs> Bach and air, Try that Bach first. And air rather, than, <laughs> rather than nitrous oxide, yeah. Oh, that was so fascinating. <laughs> Thank you very much. They were just so interesting to think about uh, the kind of, the kind of applications that it might be, but also that there's things that we can do ourselves, don't you think, Lucy? 
Yes, breathing and bark just sounds, you know, if anyone's got any resolutions for 2024, maybe those two would be, would be a good place to start. Charles, thank you so much for talking to us today. Very good to speak to you. Thank you very much. to come on the show we abandon ourselves to the open seas with alan jenkins and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. For the landlubbers among us, the idea of sailing is alluring, but nonetheless daunting. Complicated knots, flapping sails, tide tables, and if you're a catastrophist like me, sharks. But imagine doing it alone across vast ocean distances, and then imagine doing it before modern technology brought in innovations like self-steering. Richard J. King, a professor of maritime history and literature, has written about centuries of these intrepid voyages in his book Sailing Alone. And Alan Jenkins, the former deputy editor of the TLS, has reviewed it in this week's issue. We're delighted he joins us now. Hi, Alan. Hello. Or should that be ahoy? Ahoy there. Yes, ahoy. Definitely ahoy. ahoy. There. <laughs> Alan, I know you, we know you as an editor of legend and a poet of grace and distinction, but I had no idea you were a sailor too. I'm not. I'm, I'm an extremely poor sailor in as much as, I don't think I've actually sailed a boat single-handed since I was a schoolboy on um, Wimbledon Park Lake, and I capsized that. <laughs> uh, 
So we immediately had to be dispatched to the shower and the doctor and everything else. Anyway, I'm not a good sailor, but I apparently make or made a decent crew. That is, I'm the guy, well, it could have been a woman, of course, but I happen to be the guy who, on a beautiful but quite modest boat um, that I part owned, um, you sort of just did things like all the things that you mentioned. I, I did some reefing of sails. I did plenty of winching and pulling on, on sheets. That is ropes, not, you know, the bed kind. And um, and sort of generally tried to make myself useful, uh, you know, leaping ashore. Um, I suppose that was about the only time I actually risked uh, injury, let alone life and limb, was sort of leaping ashore as we were, as we were coming into a berth um, somewhere. Um, birth, B-E-R-T-H, and you get tied up quite quickly before either a, a, a sort of bit of backwash or some, you know, unpleasant accident with the engine or something takes you away from the from the mooring again. So I would have to sort of just jump on shore quickly and, and try and tie up. Um, so that kind of way of trying to be useful. But luckily, my skipper, who is a very, very good sailor and has been handling boats ever since he was a child, but rather more ambitiously than Wimbledon Park Lake, is an extremely lovable, nice and kind and, and understanding guy. And we had a lot of fun together. And although he, you know, often had to shout at me and, and you know, order me about pretty damn quick kind of thing and make sure that I was doing the right thing. It all, it all seemed to work. It was fine. It never bothered him slightest. He never bothered I mean, you know, I hope we didn't, I didn't bother him. But I, I, had, a, I had an absolutely lovely time. But I, it wasn't sailing in the sense that Richard J. King writes about it. I mean, we, we sort of tacked up and down the Solent for a long time until uh, Edward, that was my skipper's name, said to me, um, Alan, this is fine, but have you noticed how often we do this in kind of horizontal rain? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I have noticed that. And he said, do you fancy doing it in Italy? There's a lot of sun in Italy and the water's a lot bluer. And I sort of practically fainted. And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Ha ha, you know, where's the money going to come from? And he said, well, as it happens, my mother's got a little house in Italy and that's where she lives. And it's not far from this little port or harbour. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to take the boat there. What do you think? And, you know, I, I, that was when the real pleasure began. As it were. I mean, it was all a pleasure, but that was when the pleasure really began. But still, it was very, very how can I say, for me, an adventure, of course, an adventure, and more an aesthetic adventure than anything else, almost, because the boat itself was always what I loved much more than the idea of sailing. I've always loved boats and been very interested in boats ever since I was a, quite a small boy. And this was the first boat I've ever really had a, a hand in, let alone a part in owning, and or you know, a boat that was actually in my life. And she was an unbelievably beautiful boat. Built, designed by this chap called Roger Cheverton and um, built in Cowes in 1957, all wood. So quite an old-fashioned boat in some ways, but with beautiful lines. And combined with the beautiful lines above the water, she had a very sturdy, very sort of wide bottom, and that meant she was very stable. Like all the best people. <laughs> like all the best people, wide the bottom. She was broad, broad in the, the beam. beam. Mm. I should have said broad in the beam, of course, to establish my <laughs> my seagoing authority. But I, I thought that, you know, a wide bottom was something that most people would understand <laughs> a bit more. Anyway, yeah, so we she was really a boat built for, you know, sort of family cruising. You could have taken small children on her very safely and very happily. And um, but we stayed very much inshore. We didn't do. I think we were only out of sight of land about twice. You know, I, I've never done you know open water sailing in a big um, ambitious 
terrifying way, like Richard J. King's subjects have all done and, and did. You know, they crossed oceans, they crossed the world. So that is three oceans. That's the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Southern Ocean had to be crossed before you get around the world. And, I mean, the idea of doing that to me would, would be absolute. well, it just, it just wouldn't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be going there. Let's put it like that. <laughs> but, Alan, do you, do you understand the appeal of doing it? Does the book help you? I mean, maybe you understand the appeal already of doing that because you do say in your piece precisely, it's really fascinating. Why would people do it? It's an incredibly dangerous, difficult and lonely thing to do. Does it, does it get yes. to the heart of that, do you think? Yes, I think, it, I think he does that very well because he has this a sort of running theme, which he calls the why go. And he talks about his individual sailors, his individual circumnavigators and ocean crossers and their backgrounds. And he talks a little bit about, he talks a lot about their life stories. People doing really ambitious uh, voyages like that, uh, particularly alone, you tend to come out of it with a book to write. And a lot of them, I, you know, King says, Richard J. King says that he thinks a lot of them actually go into it to write a book. I personally find that very, very hard to believe. I think there are a lot easier ways of getting a book. But, you know, he has done it. Credit and kudos to him. He has done, he has crossed the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, in or on a really quite modest, small, 28-foot sort of weekend sloop, very like ours, uh, not as beautiful as ours, I hasten to add, and certainly not um, wooden, but roughly similar sort of measurements and the same kind of modest craft. And that, to me, is quite an astonishing feat. And so absolutely respect and respect again to him for having done it. I don't think necessarily that he's always right about the why go, personally. He talks about a death wish, for example, in some some of his subjects. Um, but he seems, I don't think he quite understands the idea of death wish, in that he says, you know, this is something that you can easily feel, you, you can easily imagine someone feeling after all this time alone and being tired and in danger and maybe a bit fed up and missing their partner or children or whoever, family. And uh, that isn't how the death wish works at all. I mean, the death wish would be more likely to keep me at home. You know, I would be, I would, the death wish is what keeps you stuck in a rut mm. in one place mm. until you die. That's the death wish. I mean, the idea of being up and gone on a small craft on your own across 4,000 miles of ocean, that's pure eros. That's pure desire and excitement and something, something driving you. You know, that's a drive, but it's certainly not the death drive. A life wish, really. I suppose. I, I mean, some of the people that you talk about, I mean, there, there are lots of them. They're amazing. But I was astonished, and this is relatively recently, by the mention of Laura Decker, a more recent yes. sailor, who was a teenager when she set sail on her own. I mean, how did she get, I mean, how did her parents let her foray start? Well, her parents were very encouraging, but it was it was the law that was, I mean, it was legal sort of what, what she wanted just wasn't allowed for someone her age. And she had to fight legal battles in order to be able to do it. So, I mean, she didn't just do it. She, she went through a kind of tremendous, tremendously arduous journey, as they say, um, to even make the journey. So, again, I mean, she astounds me. And, and it's a very, very interesting chapter, his chapter on Laura Decker. But I, I should have said, really, of course, he doesn't say it's the death wish that drives all these people. There are lots of sort of, well, lots, a handful of, reasons that might send somebody out on a boat like that at different at different times in history you know the the early kind of ocean crossers and circumnavigators were sort of adventurers and eccentrics you may just about come across in a novel by conrad or 
or pro- probably actually more likely Graham Greene, you know, the sort of slightly kind of risque figures that hang around bars a lot, but actually just are longing to be gone somewhere on their own in the middle of an ocean. And that, so you've got these early, late 19th century and early 20th century, you call them adventurer sailors, I suppose, and they were quite eccentric. And then you get the wars, the two wars, the world wars also encouraged a lot of people to get on boats and go who were just, well, I guess that's a simple matter. You know, that really is a matter of being utterly kind of despairing of the world, of what has the world has become and what's happened to the world uh, and possibly even your own personal world, you know. So there was that. There was that sort of need to just be elsewhere, to, to find a life that was not the life that you'd had for the last four or five years, i.e. people being slaughtered and killed and places being destroyed. That makes a lot more sense to me in a way. Not that my life has ever been like that, and you know, but I could see how it might get to the point if, if things got that bad, as they did for people in the First and Second World Wars, you might think, oh, you know, I've done this, I want to be elsewhere, I want to be on my own, I want to be apart from people, I want to be apart from the world. So that made a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, all kinds of the reasons that he comes up with make a lot of sense, in, including the sort of later ones where you have a very strong scientific urge or environmental urge. You know, you people who want to go out and, and record what, this is again what King calls the what I saw. Um, so you've got the why go and the what I saw. And the what I saw is obviously your environment, your, in the environment you have for however long you're making your, your solo trip, where you've only got, for company, the sea, the sky, the birds, the fish, occasionally sharks, occasionally dolphins. And people now are kind of, you know, when they go, they make sure that they're trying to make themselves useful, I think, at the same time by, by recording the conditions and the changing conditions of all these creatures, all these creatures in the sea and in the skies and in the sea, as their conditions are, you know, more and more, suffer more and more depredation from human activity. So I was struck by by what you said about Ellen MacArthur that that after she gave up sailing she now devotes herself full time does she as, as an activist maritime activist yeah pretty much I think she 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 does she goes around lecturing and and giving sort of demonstrations and talks and and is very very much engaged with the preservation of marine habitat so yes and she was oh an absolutely phenomenal competitive sailor you know I mean. Not only did she won the first the first transatlantic race um, in the 1960, I think around actually 1960, was won by Francis Chichester, who took 40 days. She won the same race 40 years later, 2000. It was renamed by then, but it was the same transatlantic race. She took 14 days. So, I mean, she, of course, had a very different kind of boat and all kinds of technological and technical advances, as some call them. I don't necessarily. Uh, in boat making and boat design and so on have enabled people to go faster, further and faster. So she was helped a lot by that, but it's still an amazing feat. And then she sort of then took off around the world to to break the world record for a circumnavigation, which again, she did on what has been called both the fastest boat ever made and also the most stunningly dangerous boat ever made. So, But she did it on her own. You know, yeah, Again, th- this is a psychology and a, I, I suppose there's an element of self, self-challenging, self-testing in there. I prefer to test myself in, um, well, let's say calmer ways, shall we say. (laughs) I mean, this is, it's so fascinating what actually does happen to you. And the idea that you can, I'm sure, try to prepare for it in advance, the isolation, 
the hallucinations and particularly before yes. advances in technology, the incredible exhaustion, you did the huge sleep deprivation. Yes. But of course, you can't imagine it yeah. until it's actually happening. And I mean, people must have gone out of their minds, really. Yeah, I think if they'd gone out of their minds, we wouldn't be reading their stories. Unfortunately, well, we yes. we do know, of course, about one very deeply unfortunate a chap called Donald Crowhurst, who was more or less embarrassed into uh, into taking part in in the uh, first transglobal race. That was in 1969, and he he was in financial difficulties. It, it offered a kind of tremendous uh, financial prize reward for the winner, and I think he was he, he accepted quite a bit of sponsorship from kind of local businesses. He was a it was a West Country, somewhere in the West Country, anyway, South Coast, Southwest. And he accepted these sort of local businessmen's offers of, of some money to, to get a boat and get it fitted out and get it, get it you know, ready for this race. But he'd only done about, you know, a few weeks sailing in, in sight of land. It, he was really a novice sailor. He was, he was like me, you know, and, and yet he, he found himself out of embarrassment, just take, you know, joining this race and starting the race. And then just everything went wrong. From day one, things started to go badly wrong for him. And he unraveled. At first, his, his plan was to, to sort of fake a circumnavigation. What he thought he'd do was just get as far down the coast of South America and Atlantic as he could, hang about there for a while, and then come back up across the Atlantic when the others came sort of whizzing past him so that he would at least be able to finish the race. Because if he hadn't finished, if he, you know, if the threat of not finishing would have absolutely wiped him out financially. And he had a, a, a young children, a young family. So this was terrifying. So he, he cooked up this, I mean, some would say ingenious and some would say crazy scheme of just sort of hanging about in the Atlantic until he could kind of come home and at least claim that he had finished. But one thing and another, the, the leader, the actual leader, Bernard Moitessier, was easily in the lead and then just changed his mind and thought, I mean, that is, he is a really absolutely fascinating character, a Frenchman. And he decided that he didn't want to go back. He didn't want to finish. He didn't want to go back to for, uh, England. In fact, the finishing line was in Falmouth. He wasn't going back to Falmouth. He wasn't going back to France. He wasn't going anywhere. He was going round again. So he just, he just, he just turned the nose of his, his boat south and, and went back down the Atlantic, round the Cape of Good Hope, and set out across the uh, Southern Ocean again until he got to the Pacific. And then midway, I think, you know, sort of Pacific, he found himself in Tahiti, which he thought, yeah, listen, I'll hang around in Tahiti for a few years. It's a wonderful story. <laughs> which is kind of what he did. Oh, you know, well, that, that, take, that takes some Gallic style, I think. You know, Tahiti, better, than, better possibly than Falmouth, I suppose. It was Tynmouth that um, Donald Crowhurst set sail from. And I know this simply because my father was obsessed is perhaps too strong a word, but he was deeply preoccupied with it, maybe because we lived in right. heaven when I was right. born. And yes. also, I know I, uh, this it doesn't make any sense that I'm a bit frightened of the ocean because my parents met on a ship. They were crew. And I believe, it, if this possibly too strong for the TLS podcast, I think I might have been conceived at the oh. sea, obviously. I know, I know. How there we romantic. Are. I know how romantic, but it was a great big sort of ocean liner. But uh, Donald Crowhurst, fascinated my father and also Jonathan uh, Coe, I think. He made his way into a Jonathan Coe novel. Donald Crowhurst, not my father. But he was one of those, I mean, we, we I suppose, connect it to things like Reggie Perrin, to John Stonehouse, don't we? This idea that you can change your life 
even if you're a, a sort of anti-hero. I may be going slightly off course here, Lucy, stop me. No, no, it's very interesting, isn't it? And Alan, like the Moitessier story um, that you were saying, and also the, yeah. the the other guy you mentioned who won, Knox Johnston. Yes. Who you then said who, who won and, yes. and then donated all of his winnings to Crowhurst's widow and child. It's very moving. These stories are extraordinary stories, aren't they? Well, I think, you know, there is a kind of camaraderie of the ocean. I, I, I mean, sailors can be very, very competitive, obviously. And if you get enough of them in a bar, uh, they will try, you know, the drunker they get, the more they will try to outdo each other with their tales of, you know, recklessness and heroism on, on the water. But a lot of them will just simply quietly listen and discuss, you know, actually more realistic and real things that happen to you and might happen to you and the ways that you can, you know, improve your chances of getting through them and so on. So there is that sort of camaraderie and that sort of, uh, you know, understanding among sailors. And I experienced it in my tiny, tiny way with my skipper in a in a bar in in the Isle of Wight one evening when we'd put in at the Isle of Wight because it, it got very dark very suddenly a wind got up like you know quite a frightening wind it was pouring you know there was, there was a storm coming and it was a nasty windy blowy rainy storm and we thought there's no point in trying to get home which was only across the Portsmouth but we didn't fancy our, you know doing that so we put back in to the Isle of Wight and, and found a berth there for, for the night and went off to this bar. And even, you know, that experience for me, I, I, oh, I was like being reborn. I thought, oh, I'm a sailor now. <laughs> oh, dear, you see. I mean, that this is the problem. Storms, though. Storms. I mean, the waves can get very, very high, can they not? Oh, 40, 30, 40, 50 feet in the Southern Ocean is completely normal. Well, normal but in a storm in a, in, a, in a big blow that's completely part of the course in the southern ocean i don't think they're quite as terrifying in the atlantic but certainly in the southern ocean which is where of all places on earth i think i would least like to be on my own in a salt you know you've not only got the waves you've got the weather it really you know very 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 violent and unpredictable weather conditions but you've also got icebergs floating up you know, coming drifting around if you get too far south or if you're even trying to make a course south and then round, as it were, into into the Pacific, around Australia. As it was strange that that sounds, you know, you just go go south until you get to Australia and turn left kind of thing. But, yeah, I mean, I think, no, you know, I've got my geography a bit mixed up there. Um, maybe not. So you're in the Southern Ocean. You've got these unbelievably terrifying waves. You've just had a squall, you know, i.e. a sort of blast of wind lasting for about five minutes that's taken your mast off or ripped your headsail to shreds. So you've got to do something about that. You're just bobbing about like a cork at that point, and you're going to die. You're, you know, the next squall or the next wave is going to flip you over, uh, capsize the boat, that is, into freezing water, and the chances are you're not going to survive. So... You know, that to me is, is that really is a test of just about what, you know, everything it is to be physically human. How much can I do to preserve my life in these circumstances when everything is trying to take away my life? Mm. Does the book convey the, the thrill of it and the, I mean, is it a book for non-sailors as well, I suppose, is what I'm asking? It's a funny thing you ask that because I asked myself a lot while I was reading. I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it was immensely enjoyable book. It's a very relaxed book. I mean, I've probably talked more excitedly about these dangerous situations because for me, as, as I say, as now a total landlubber, and even when I, in my sailing days, so-called a very, very, very modest and, and unambitious sailor, um, for me, they, they were extremely exciting and extremely frightening and extremely 
you know, absorbing, compelling. I, I, I was trying to think, what on earth makes somebody do this? King is a very relaxed writer. He tells the stories. He, some of the time, he sort of paraphrases the the stories that have already been told by the people have done, who've done it. He kind of interweaves his own story of his own crossing, which took him five weeks across the Atlantic, and I say in this very modest boat. Um, but he does it in a very, let's say, kind of steady, even way. And, and he, there are no storms in his writing. You know, there, he just tells, the, tells it what happened and how it is and how it was. And it was for me, or the reader, to kind of try to imagine themselves into these situations and think, Christ, I'm glad that's not me, you know. Or at least that's what I did for a lot of the time. But as for who else might enjoy it, I think armchair sailors will enjoy it if they haven't already read you know, almost a lot of the books that, that King um, relies on or draws on, I should say. And active sailors, as I think I probably say in my reviews, might want to take it along on their next trip and just sort of dip in and out, you know, because it does. he has some wonderful stories and he has some very kind of fascinating passages. But generally it's a quite even, you know, the, the weather is relatively even and calm through the book. So, so, no, he doesn't really whip up a tremendous amount of excitement about that. But he, he does have very, very moving passages about people being helped, sailors, that is, being helped, that is, guided, escorted, warned even by uh, creatures, sea creatures like dolphins, well, specifically dolphins. And, you know, passages about flying fish leaping across the bow of your boat, one or two unlucky ones landing on, on the bow of your boat and providing you with a, with a meal, you know, for, for, for supper. You know, it's very, very rare that you're going to be able, as a, a lone sailor in a big ocean, you suddenly sort of get out your fishing rod, you know, and start having a look for, for your supper that, that way. Uh, that probably isn't going to happen unless you're enduring a period of either incredible calm or incredibly fair weather and, and, and light wind. So, that, you know, flying fish landing on your deck would make a pretty inviting supper if you've just been struggling a bit. So there's much more movingly I found the stories of dolphins who guided Matessier away from, I think it was, I haven't looked this up again since I read the book, but was it an iceberg? He was heading into danger. Matessier was heading into danger and he realized that a pod of dolphins was accompanying him and they would gently sort of change their direction every so often, pushing him away from them until he realized that they were actually escorting him. They were taking him to where they knew there was no danger, he would be safe. So that was a terribly moving story to me. And I wish, you know, at some point in my own sailing days, I, you know, I, 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 I long to have experienced something like that. But you don't get much of that on a sailor. <laughs> no, well, well, you know, you never know. I mean, never say never, Alan. No, no, quite. Never say quite. never. You may go back to it. Yeah, I may. Well, on the <laughs> other hand, I think I'd probably be a bit more like Donald Crowhurst. Now, poor Donald, who, you know, I... Having cooked up this this mad scheme, you know, as I say, everything went wrong for him, including Martessier, who would easily have won. You're just turning around and thinking, I'll, I'll do another trip. And and then Robin Knox Johnston sort of, you know, coming along, but not yet ahead, not actually ahead. Of course he wasn't ahead because, as I say, Crowhurst had really been just hanging around in the Atlantic. And the poor man realised that if he actually set sail and got back across the Atlantic, he was going to win the race. Now, that would have been terrific in one way because it would have solved his financial problems, but he was smart enough to know that it would also bring him an unbelievably unprecedented amount of attention and scrutiny, and people would be asking him, well, what course did you, did you make from here to there, and how did you deal with the Southern Ocean? And these, he hadn't been anywhere near the sort of dangerous, really dangerous parts. I mean, the Atlantic's dangerous enough, but not compared to the Southern Ocean. 
So he realized that he couldn't face up. He wouldn't be able to stand or face the scrutiny because it, it would break down and he would be discovered and he would be, you know, basically humiliated and finished. So he just, oh, you're really at the logbooks, his log, he kept logbooks right to the end, but he was going crazy. He was steadily losing his mind. So that, you know, that's the saddest story, I think, mm. that we, we, we learn from this whole adventure of, of racing, that is ocean racing and circumnavigation racing. But, but a lot of the people who have done this don't, aren't racing. They're not competitive about it. They just want to do it. And that, you know, that's a, a truly, truly, truly strange thing. As we draw to a close, I think it's safe to say, and possibly on behalf of Lucy, we are more likely to read this book than we are to set sail ourselves. Is that fair, Lucy? <laughs> At the current moment, I think Alan, maybe Alan's got another trip. Or do you think not, Alan? Do you think now you'd rather read about it? Uh, these days, I'd probably rather read about it. I, I just don't think my body would take it, frankly. I mean, I'd, if I'm going to do another trip, I think it would have to be on a very, very, very large yacht crewed by big, sturdy Greek sailors somewhere out <laughs> in the Greek islands. And all I had to do was basically sit around uh, on the after deck, you know, drinking. Yeah, lifting a drink. Yeah, exactly. While all the, all the heavy lifting and everything else and the heavy winching was done, let's say, by a kind of crew of 40 or something. That, that would be fine. I'd, I'd be incredibly happy doing that trip. But I can't see myself doing one, doing one again as crew for anyone, alas. And I certainly, certainly can't see myself doing one alone. Well, listen, Alan, thank you so much for talking about it all uh, so entertainingly and informatively. We will stay on land. However, we're very grateful to you for taking us to sea just for half an hour. Not at all. I really want to say what a really good and well-constructed and interesting book this is. I don't know if mm. I've said that at any mm. point. And I, and I think it is. And, and, you know, I want to give full credit to Richard J. King, not, not just because he's done this amazing thing on a small boat, but he's actually written about it very well. We'll send all our armchair and other sailors towards it. And Alan, thank you so much. Not at all, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Charles Foster and Alan Jenkins. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS Podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>